When Krakatoa Blew Up by Ernst Berendt. The world is awed by the might of the blasts that devastated Hiroshima and Nagasaki, but there was an explosion once that was incomparably greater. Those atomic bombs flattened two cities, yet people a few dozen miles away were oblivious of the fact. When the East Indies island of Krakatoa blew up on 27th August 1883, the whole world knew about it. The noise was heard 3,000 miles away. The great waves the explosion caused in the sea reached the shores of four continents and were recorded 8,000 miles away. An airwave generated by the blast travelled clear round the world, not once, but several times. And where had been a mountain half a mile high was now a hole a thousand feet deep and miles across. Red-hot debris covered an area larger than France, to a depth of sometimes 100 feet on land. For nearly a year afterwards, the dust of the explosion, blown upwards for 30 miles, filled the high atmosphere over almost the whole globe. Even though there were no large towns within 100 miles of the volcano, 36,000 persons lost their lives. The biggest blast in history was caused by nothing more mysterious than the old-fashioned force which rattles the lid on a tea kettle. But the fire under the kettle was a mile-long pocket of seething lava, and it changed a cubic mile of ocean into superheated steam. The lid blew off, and the kettle exploded as well. Krakatoa was a volcanic island of about 18 square miles in the Sunda Strait, in the Dutch East Indies between Java and Sumatra. Early in the spring of 1883, there were warning signs. Smoke and steam poured from recent fissures in the rock. A river of lava cut a wide swathe through the tangled jungle. But the Dutch in Java and Sumatra were not alarmed. Old Krakatoa had puffed and rumbled before. Even when the Dutch captain, Ferzenar, arrived in Batavia in August with a report that two new volcanoes had appeared on Krakatoa, the Dutch were not impressed. There were scores of volcanoes in Indonesia. Besides, Krakatoa was almost a hundred miles away. The ground was so hot it burned right through the soles of my boots, Captain Ferzenar said. Well, if it was that warm on Krakatoa, the few people who lived there would have to take to their boats and wait until the island cooled off. Captain Ferzenar was the last white man to set foot on Krakatoa before the eruption. By this time, navigation through Sunda Strait was becoming difficult. Several skippers turned back when they saw the narrows covered with a foot-thick layer of cinders. But the captain of one freighter battened down the hatches and calmly sailed through the hissing sea. His cargo? Kerosene. No one after him attempted the passage. By now, Krakatoa's rumblings had grown into a continuous, angry roar heard along the entire east coast of Java. In Bertenzorg, 61 miles from Krakatoa, people were seeking shelter from what they thought was a gathering thunderstorm. In the afternoon of 26 August, RDM Verbeck wrote in his description of the catastrophe, the low rumbling was interrupted by sharp reverberating detonations. They grew louder and more frequent. People were terrified. Night came, but no one thought of sleeping. Towards morning, the incessant noise was drowning out every other sound. Suddenly, shortly before seven, 
there was a tremendous explosion. Buildings shook, walls cracked, and doors flew open as if pushed by invisible hands. Everybody rushed into the streets. Another deafening explosion, and then everything was quiet, as if the volcano had ceased to exist. The volcano had ceased to exist. Seething with the expansion of its gases, the white-hot lava found temporary outlets in the two craters seen by Ferzenar, which normally acted as safety valves. But the pressure became too great. Unimaginable energies were straining against hundreds of feet of solid rock overhead. The rock heaved, buckled. On the evening of 26 August, it cracked wide open like the wall of a defective cauldron. With all the fury of a primordial cataclysm, a stream of lava burst forth in a deafening roar. Seconds later, the ocean rushed into the opening. On contact with the hot lava, the water changed into superheated steam. Colossal blocks of granite and obsidian rocketed upwards amid a cloud of dust and smoke. Again, the ocean rushed in, battling the pent-up lava, changing into expanding, exploding, superheated steam, breaking down barrier after barrier of rock. No one knows how many times the white-hot magma pushed back the ocean and how often the ocean returned to the assault. In the end, the water won. Early in the morning of 27 August, the ocean reached the volcanic centre of the island. Even the fury of the previous explosions was but a faint prelude to the final cataclysm as the heart was ripped out of Krakatoa and 14 cubic miles of rock streaked upwards into the sky. The sun was blotted out behind a curtain of ebony torn by jagged lightning. Miles away, Krakatoa's pyrotechnics awed the sailors of the British ship Charles Ball, who saw the island shoot up over the horizon, shaped like a pine tree brilliantly illuminated by electric flashes. The sea was covered with innumerable fish floating belly up on the churning water. Long afterwards came the noise, the loudest ever heard by human ears. The concussions were deafening, wrote Lloyd's agent in Batavia, a hundred miles away. They hammered every eardrum in Java and Sumatra and put fear into the hearts of Borneo's headhunters. People in Victoria Plains, Australia, 1,700 miles to the eastward, were startled by what seemed to be artillery fire. The sound waves travelled 2,968 miles westward to Rodriguez Island near Madagascar. With the noise, concentric waves of air started on their way around the globe. A day and a half after the explosion, the first of them hit London from the west. Then a second wave rushed over the city from the east. Four times the eastbound wave swept over London. And over Berlin, St Petersburg and Valencia as well. And three times it swept back. The stratospheric seesaw continued for more than ten days before the blast had spent its force. Far more violent was the effect of the eruption on the sea. In Anja, on the west coast of Java, a retired sea captain suddenly noticed a new island which had bobbed up in the strait. The next moment he was running for his life. The island was a wall of water, 50 feet high, advancing across the narrows at incredible speed, battering down the wharves, engulfing Anja, racing uphill, smashing everything in its path. The wave flung a log at him and he went down. When he regained consciousness, he was sitting on the top of a tree, half a mile inland, 
stripped of every shred of clothing, but otherwise unharmed. He was one of the few who saw the wave and lived to describe its fury. Anja had vanished. The wave, rising to a height of a hundred feet, wiped out scores of villages and killed thousands of people. On the coast of Sumatra, the wave tore the warship Baroon from her moorings and drove her, anchor dragging, two miles inland, leaving her stranded in the jungle, 30 feet above sea level. The wave raced across the entire width of the Indian Ocean. When it reached Cape Town, 5,100 miles away, it was still over a foot high. It rounded the Cape of Good Hope, returned northward into the Atlantic, along the coast of Africa, and at last spent itself in the English Channel. Whole districts of Indonesia were buried under ashes. The jungles were choked, the rice paddies changed into deserts. The sky was so filled with ashes that for a time lamps were needed all day in Batavia. But what covered the land and the sea was only a small part of the volcano. Most of Krakatoa's solid rock had been pulverised and blasted to a height of 150,000 feet. Clouds of volcanic dust hung suspended in the stratosphere for months. Air currents carried them across oceans and continents. All over the world, the rays of the sun were filtered through a veil spun in the depths of Sunder Strait. In Paris, New York, Cairo and London, the setting sun appeared blue, leaden, green and copper-coloured, and at night the earth was steeped in the light of a green moon and green stars. The phenomenon lasted into the spring of 1884. Then the colours faded and Krakatoa's magnificent shroud disappeared. The final chapter in its history seemed to be over. Krakatoa was utterly dead. Nothing was left of it but a few square miles of rock buried under a mountain of ashes. All plants and insects and birds and mammals had been dissolved in a fiery cloud. Then a miracle happened. The miracle of the rebirth of life. Four months after the eruption, a botanist found an almost microscopic spider gallantly spinning its web where nothing was to be caught. It had apparently drifted in on the wind. And then in a few years came the grasses and shrubs, the worms, ants, snakes and birds. They arrived by air, seeds dropped by birds on their flight over the barren land, small caterpillars carried by the wind, beetles and butterflies winging their way over from Java and Sumatra. They arrived by water, eggs of worms and reptiles flung ashore with flotsam, snails and scorpions riding waves on decayed tree trunks, pythons and crocodiles swimming across the narrows. Parasites clung to their bodies. Plants and animals came over by accident, but there was nothing accidental about the sequence in which they established themselves. It was a rigid chronological pattern telescoping millennia into months. Some forms of life had to be there first so that others could live. For a while, some forms prospered through the absence of enemies and competitors. Around 1910, Krakatoa was overrun by swarms of ants. Ten years later, when there were plenty of birds and reptiles, the ants had all but disappeared. By 1919, the first small clusters of trees had taken root, and by 1924, they had grown into a continuous forest. A few years later, climbing plants were already choking the trees to death and transforming the new forest into a tropical jungle 
with orchids, butterflies, snakes, numberless birds and bats. Krakatoa became a naturalist's paradise, and the Dutch made it a nature reserve and allowed no one but accredited scientists to set foot on the island. They worked out a complete inventory of life on Krakatoa. They counted the steadily growing number of new arrivals and observed how they lived with each other and fought each other. They even discovered several subspecies, birds and butterflies with peculiar characteristics, not to be found anywhere else. Krakatoa was not only drawing on the forms of life around it, it was creating a life of its own. Then, one day, the scientists discovered another sort of life stirring on Krakatoa. The old volcano was not dead. Deep down under its rocky foundation, a pocket of lava was seeking an outlet for its energies. The bottom of the inland sea was heaving and buckling again. A submarine cone was building up. On 26 January 1928, it broke the surface and showed its top, a flat, ugly island a few hundred feet across, which the waves washed away a few days later. A year passed. Then suddenly a geyser began to spout steam and ashes. Sulfurous fumes drifted over the ocean. Again the sea was covered with dead fish floating belly up. The new geyser is still there. It is a portion of the ancient crater rim with mud deposited on its top and a flue in its centre, a safety valve for the stupendous pressure generated by the lava pocket underneath. The locals call the new volcano Anak Krakatoa, the child of Krakatoa. No name could be more ominous. For more RD Talks, visit readersdigest.com.au Brought to you by Reader's Digest Australia Narration by Zoe Mernier Sound production by Ricky Price 